This evening's uh, talk is the first of a two-part talk um, <clears throat> on mindfulness, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. And beginning this evening's talk with a few moments as though uh, sitting under the Bodhi tree with the Buddha. Siddha was sitting, he wasn't a Buddha yet, sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama over 2,500 years ago. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha Gotama, the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by the words, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? where and how you are, just who do you think you are, anyway? The Bodhisatta, the just-about-to-be-Buddha, balanced with the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of investigation accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, which was imbued by an enlivening and refreshing joy, Siddhartha Gotama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, with his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to have any power over the Buddha. <clears throat> and so we said, maybe not always quite exactly like the Buddha sat on that night 2,500 years ago, but we said, 
and we practice with sincerity and determination at home and now here in retreat with dedication and with aspiration. And as we sit, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were all so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop, deepen, and mature within us. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep on practicing. So this evening we'll begin exploring the quality uh, or the factor of mind that the Buddha said was like a precious gem. Mindfulness. Exploring mindfulness from the standpoint of it being an essential factor of awakening. When the Buddha speaks about mindfulness as being like a precious gem, he tells us that it's supported by seclusion, dispassion, and renunciation, the very conditions we have here on retreat. Mindfulness, along with concentration, are key factors for the heart, the mind, to ripen into relinquishment. Relinquishment in this case meaning the letting go into awakening, letting go into liberation. As we explore together this evening, consider the possibility of letting the words be a touch point or a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself, which from my own experience is facilitated by what we might call listening from the heart rather than listening from the head. So in support of this, it's helpful to relax deeply in and through the body. So right now, just taking a moment or two to relax from head to toe. Dropping into the body with a bright attention relaxed and brightly alert at the same time. And letting the whole body, heart and mind deeply relax into simply and directly hearing. So this factor of mindfulness. I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all the factors of enlightenment. In fact, the great mother of the whole of our practice. 
in a sense, it's, it's the factor that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for awakening. The factors of enlightenment, there are seven of them, and I'll just list them at this point. The first being mindfulness, and I'll just go on down the list. Investigation, energy or effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. The Buddha uh, spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. We could say uh, that mindfulness is the chief mother. When it really begins to be established in us, it's the factor that lights up all of the inner and outer phenomena that we experience, as well as offering us the greatest protection in this life. In Pali, the word for mindfulness is sati. Sometimes it's translated as memory, this word sati, or to remember, or to remember, to reconnect. To connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but in fact to remain resting in our habits, to remain resting in a kind of inertia. Years ago, in a Dhamma discussion with friends, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? I think it's a very good question. Mindfulness has become a fairly common word these days which is good on one hand. On the other hand, some of its depth and its potency has been dissipated through a kind of common use of it. So what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? The great intimacy of mindfulness, this moment's experience, is this, just this much absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. Meaning, absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, concentrated, direct, and immediate mindful awareness in relationship to the experiences that come through each of these sense doors. Being receptive to what is, without the forethought of concepts, past experiences, or ideas of how we think it is, or how we think it should be, or will be, or could be. 
as uh, Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. In Zen, this is sometimes called the don't-know mind. With this great intimacy of mindfulness, opening the door to understanding the truth that sometimes appears so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in our old habits, to not remain resting in a kind of inertia, but to really meet the experiences of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come close and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects going right into the object. And yet at the same time, it's not a fixed or or sticky connection. Mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough and deep enough to know it. It's this flavor of attention that allows a penetrating investigation and a clear comprehension of whatever it connects with. Mindfulness can be called the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. A non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, a purely receptive relationship to whatever phenomena is presenting itself in the present moment. And of course we pay attention to a whole range of experiences, including things that we usually do quite mechanically, breathing, walking, eating, picking things up, putting things down, etc. We pay attention to things that are pleasant and experiences that are unpleasant. Experiences that are wonderful and easy to pay attention to, as well as things that are more difficult to give our attention to. We open to all of it, no parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. Not the, well, I could really be mindful if only I wasn't so restless. Or I could really be mindful if I didn't feel so much anger. I could really be mindful if I wasn't sick. And I could really be mindful if I felt better and wasn't so caught up in thought or so attracted to or attached to pleasure or beauty. This factor of mindfulness is about living in the action. 
living in the action of the body and the mind, heart, living in the present moment's experience. In a sense, we forget ourself. We, in a sense, lose our self in what is. And so there's just what is, without anything added or needing to be added, without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The moment that we think, I'm doing this, we're creating or recreating a sense of a separate self, creating a separation, a disconnection from the reality of the way of things and living in an idea, the idea of I, the idea of me, the idea of mine, instead of living in the action. I sometimes uh, think of mindfulness as magic. Not the magician's magic that creates illusion and then pulls us into that illusion, pulls us into that delusion. The magic and the great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion, out of the delusion, directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. Without it, we're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things and caught again and again and again in our reactivity to these assumed, meaning not clearly seen, appearances. The result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. Venerable Analayo, a Buddhist scholar, uh, puts it this way in his book called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. He says the element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for satipatthana as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experience nor compulsively reacts to them. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. This technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing in this way, bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. 
important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. No matter who we are, where or how we live, all of us want happiness. Most of us want much of our life experience to be permanent, ongoing, or at least deeply fulfilling. Or we want life to suit our passing fancies our expectations, and maybe our heartfelt deepest desires. Consequently, most people spend most of their time and energy trying to find this, trying to satisfy these deep desires through external experiences. So, for instance, by getting this and that, or him or her, doing this and that, going here and there. Or we try to find, we try to get ongoing contentment and fulfillment through the constantly changing world of our senses and through the myriad and constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives. As many of us know, at least conceptually, none of this really works. The Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experiences of pleasure. He said that happiness arises when we're mindful. A revolutionary statement. Happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we take the Buddha's words to heart and look closely, very closely. We see, feel, and know our experience directly. Our meditation practice cultivates mindfulness. A focused mindfulness happens, we could say, when we truly and fully bring our attention to the present moment. And we practice this over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Our practice is one of deep intimacy, the deepest intimacy really with our own experiences, which as practice develops, as it expands and matures, becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware, intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment. See and know what is, what really truly is. How is it in this present moment? 
and this present moment and this present moment this is really a basic foundation to all forms of Buddhist practice how is it in experiencing the eye ear, nose, tongue, touch how is it in experiencing the mind how is it really not what you hope it is or want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be A mindful relationship to our present moment's experience is what allows clarity and a true understanding, insight to arise, to just simply and naturally arise, which it inevitably does. We don't do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here, ever-present immediately close, always, and everywhere, right here. And it's our greatest protection. Some years ago I was uh, teaching a class here in Taos, um, a mindfulness class. And at the beginning of each class we would gather and people would share uh, something from their week of practice that was related to what we were exploring. And one class, uh, one student came in and said that that morning she had been watering her garden. And she'd watered her garden hundreds of times over the years. But she said that morning she was watering her garden and it was as though for the first time she was mindful (laughs) and then she tried to explain a little bit how that felt and then she said her mind well then her mind took a big leap we could say and she said how have we survived so long without being mindful terrible things are decided and done when mindfulness isn't present The Buddha Dhamma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. In fact, if we're not bringing our full attention to the present moment, if we're not mindful, we're living really at a distance from experience, living at a distance from life itself, which actually then just keeps the circle, the reactive cycle of conditioned habit patterns going around and around and around. We're kind of living like uh, akin to our computers. You know, you push uh, the button on the computer and out comes what's already in there. When our buttons are pushed, out pop our conditioned patterns, out pops our conditioned reactions. Another way of looking at this is that without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are out of focus. 
our perspective, our perception is blurred. We experience life through the filters of ideas or preconceptions, opinions, judgments, hopes, fears, or similar past experiences. So an example, an experience that probably every one of us in this room have had. You meet someone new, someone you've never ever met before, never seen before, and you don't see them as they actually are. You see them in relationship to your thoughts about them, how much you think you like them, or are attracted to them, or how much you think you don't like them, or aren't attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of somebody else. So you see this new person in relationship to the similar qualities you're thinking about in the other person, somebody else. Or you see this new person in relationship to how you hope they are, or what you want from them, or hope you can get from them, or hope you won't get from them. With all of this, you're not experiencing this person you've just met for the first time. You're not experiencing them just simply as they are. They don't even have a chance with all that. And maybe you've had uh, the experience of getting to know someone and found out that, in fact, they weren't at all like your imagined ideas about them. Without mindfulness, everything we perceive is like this. Everything we see, taste, hear, touch, smell, think is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thoughts, in conformity with our habitual patterns. Meditation practice grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a very clear, sharp focus to see things as they truly are, as though for the first time, without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with what's been called beginner's mind. When one of my grandsons was uh, two and a half years old, I had the good fortune to be with him and his mother the first time that he saw a pine cone. He picked up this object and looked at it every way, turned it in every direction, every possible upside down, forwards, backwards. There's no forwards and backwards with pine cones. But anyways, he turned it in every direction, and then he put it up to his nose. He smelled it all over. He stuck his tongue out, tasted it all the way around, investigating it with all the sense doors. Stuck it up to his ear, other ear, mother and I were watching and then we dutifully uh, as grandmother and mother said that's a pine cone (laughs) and he kind of looked at us uh, looked up at us quizzically 
but he was a good little boy, so he repeated, pine cone. But then he went on investigating, directly experiencing this object that he'd found and for the very first time encountered with his fresh, open beginner's mind. This is an attitude of mind, that mind, heart, that we can learn or relearn to bring our life as, bring it into our life as a whole again. And it's transformative. It's transformative and it's healing. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine. The best medicine to make us well in the deepest and the most profound sense. Well as in freedom from suffering, the suffering of confusion, anguish, fear. Freedom from the ongoing wanting that stems from ongoing dissatisfaction. Freedom from suffering. And a quote that I found once, I, I actually don't know who said it or who it was from. One who is awakened, who has taken the medicine of the teachings and practiced meditation, is healed and healed the sickness, is one who is freed from suffering. There are uh, four domains or four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. So this evening we'll explore the first domain, which is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's ideas uh, uh, or uh, about it or interpretations of it. And of course there are many and varied and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. And as all of us here are uh, aware of, uh, one of our primary orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. The development uh, of the mind and the Understanding that's accessible through mindfulness of breathing, of breath, is potentially profound. In making these simple sensations of the in and out breath at the nostrils a basic ground of mindful attention, I personally have at times been deeply grateful and even awed at the depth and breadth of the purification of the heart, of the mind, and what comes to be intuitively known with a simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath. So just for a moment now, close your eyes. And let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the in and out 
sensations at the nostrils with without any self or as little self as possible And just very simply notice, for instance, are you trying to control, trying to manipulate the breath? Noticing without judgment, without self-recrimination. In a moment of seeing clearly, there's often a sense of relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. And so the body in the body, mindfulness of the four postures, not our ordinary, everyday, quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity, but a closer, more intimate, more ongoing and careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and the various movements of the body and getting up and getting, getting down flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, lifting and carrying, even bringing mindfulness of the body in the body to the experiences of falling asleep and waking. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I, behind this waking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing simply be known as just standing? Sitting as just simply sitting? Walking is just simply walking without the layer of I am or the internal feeling of this is me walking or sitting or etc. Once, many years ago, Saito Upandita asked me, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensations. And for just a moment in that practice interview, I was caught by the question, which in retrospect I think was a kind of test of my practice at the time. But very quickly there was a spontaneous reflection and then a response to Saito Pandita. And the response was, 
No, there's no woman or man or anybody known. When I'm directly connected, directly connected with and mindful of walking or whatever bodily phenomena is happening. A good question you might ask yourself at some point. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body? I had a student a number of years ago named Roy, a very deeply dedicated practitioner right up into his dying moment. And he was dying of AIDS. One afternoon I was sitting with him in the hospital as he was lying in bed. And there was not, at that point there was not much left of his body. He stretched his arm up overhead as he was lying down and turning it slowly and looking at it very carefully and with great interest as he turned it around back and forth. And then he said in a very cool and yet odd way, he said, Wow! The form the posture and the movements of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the afternoon wind or the early morning sunrise or the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or disliking of some experience or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. Choices are made but in truth they, too, are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered, and intimate attention to the body and its movements? Can we begin to directly experience this truth? The next establishment or domain of mindfulness of the body as a body that the Buddha suggests, actually it's not a casual suggestion, he really didn't usually suggest anything very casually, but gave a direction, this is a direction from the Buddha, is giving attention to the parts of the body. And in the classical Buddhist text, it's all 32 parts of the body. 
hair, skin, muscles, bones, and all of the various internal organs and fluids. In your practice here, I'm sure that you notice parts of the body as they make themselves known, such as the intestines or the bladder, or the heart or lungs or maybe the liver, the mucus, muscles, saliva, nerves, etc. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way? As this retreat goes on now, you have the possibility to bring a connected but unattached concentration and mindfulness directly to the various parts of the body. How identified are you, for instance, with the hair on your head or the lack of it or the hair on your body? How do you attend to the experiences of your intestine and the digestive processes therein? Or to a moment or many moments experience of the heart? How do you experience your skin? This bag of flesh that holds all the various contents of the body. How often do you experience your nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness? A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified, kind of attention. Just the body in the body without the layers of ideas, interpretations, and concerns about it. Just the body as a body. This can be a very powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual solidity and identification with one's own body and other bodies. And some words from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally. He or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. Just consider for a moment, <clears throat> how do you identify yourself? Most of us, if not all of us, for most of us, a primary or at least a large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa, which is the Pali word that translates as material form or material, materiality, rupa. 
So considering this for a moment in relationship to yourself. I'm a woman or I'm a man. I'm thin or fat or not too thin or not too fat. I'm tall or short or of average height. I'm good-looking, handsome, beautiful, ugly, plain, attractive, unattractive. I have dark skin or I have light skin or good skin or bad skin. My nose is large or it's too big or my nose is small or my nose is cute. I'm wrinkled and old and weak or I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned. And on and on and on it goes. With all of these personal identities constantly changing over the years, or just within days, or within just moments in our mind, even though we engage tremendous effort, energy, and time in clinging to these various identities. There's no place to hang our identity hat for more than just a few moments. If that. No place to rest in this constantly changing, all these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are. In relationship to this, another aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different than any other form, essentially no different than any other rupa. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. Again, a kind of non-ordinary and powerful way to begin to cut through the concept of a static solidity and the I am identification. The Buddha offered a profound teaching and a very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. That if we sincerely and seriously take it up, it becomes a window, opening us to the direct experience, discernment, and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of rupa the ultimate reality of form, the reality of how it really is, how what this body and every other form really is. The teaching and practice is about directly discerning the four great essentials, as they're sometimes called, or the four great elements, earth, water, fire, air, or wind in directly experiencing the characteristics of each of these elements in the body. So the earth element, the characteristics of the earth element are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, 
smoothness, lightness. The characteristics of the water element are flowing, cohesion. The characteristics of the fire element are heat, warmth, or cold, or coolness. And the characteristics of the air element, or the wind element, are supporting, pushing. So I'd like to spend a few moments together exploring just a few of these characteristics for a few moments this evening. And we'll begin by relaxing. Always begin by relaxing. (laughs) Relaxing and bringing your attention to the breath at the touching point or the anapana spot for a few moments. Letting the mind settle and focus in a simple way. And we'll start with pushing. The characteristic, one of the characteristics of the air element or wind element. Pushing. And begin by being aware through the sense of touch of the pushing in the center of the head as you breathe in and breathe out. If the pushing of the breath in the center of the head isn't easy to discern, then try being aware of pushing as the chest expands when breathing in, or as the abdomen moves with the out-breath. or as the abdomen moves with the in-breath. Wherever there's movement, there's pushing. When you can discern the characteristic of pushing, briefly concentrate on it until it becomes clearer in your mind.
and now move your awareness to another part of the body nearby and look for pushing there. This can be done again and again and again in various parts of the body until wherever you place your awareness in the body, you can easily see and know pushing. <clears throat> In some places it will be obvious and in other places it will be subtle. But it's present everywhere throughout the body. Now letting go of the experience of pushing and we'll explore discerning hardness. <clears throat> and beginning by discerning hardness in the teeth. Bite your teeth together a few times. And feeling how hard they are. Now relax your bite and feel the hardness of the teeth. And when you can feel this, try to discern hardness in other parts of the body. Anywhere from the head to the feet. In the same way as you did in discerning pushing. And take care not to deliberately tense the body. And now letting go of the experience of hardness. <clears throat> and we'll explore discerning softness. Beginning by gently pressing your tongue against the inside of your upper or lower lip to feel its softness. Relax your body. 
and practice for a moment or two systematically beginning to discern softness throughout the body. It's everywhere in the body. letting go of the experience of softness. And next we'll look for heat or warmth throughout the body. It's usually quite easy to see and to know. Heat, warmth. And next, coldness or coolness. And it can be helpful to begin by feeling the coldness of the breath as it enters the nostrils. Or the coolness of the breath as it enters the nostrils. and then begin to discern coolness or coldness throughout the body. All of the elemental characteristics that we've explored so far are known directly through the sense of touch. The next two elemental characteristics are to some degree known by inference as well as by direct experience. And these two characteristics are flowing and cohesion, the characteristics of the water element. And we'll just explore one of them this evening. So experimenting for a moment in discerning the characteristic or the quality of cohesion. Awareness of how the body is being held together by the skin, flesh and sinews. the blood being held in by tissue and skin like water in a balloon. 
without cohesion, the body would actually fall into separate pieces and particles. The force of gravity, which keeps the body stuck to the earth, is also cohesion. If cohesion still isn't clear experientially, then you can pay attention to just the qualities of pushing and hardness. Eventually you might feel uh, as if the whole body's kind of wrapped up in coils of a rope. Now letting this exploration go. Intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these most basic and universal experiences? This body in its elemental nature. Essentially, no different from any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Seemingly something that we uh, really don't have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting like this. But the truth of the matter is that there are many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Potentially the possibility of insects, maybe birds or other creatures, and certainly the corpses of plants, trees and flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and decompose, or just to deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it's possible to observe this directly. I've been in retreat in various places over the years, and at times quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses, and continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes that things do as and after they die. And once when I was on retreat with a few friends in Cape Cod, where we'd rented a house for a couple of months to practice together, I had the great good fortune, or maybe good fortune only in uh, the world of Dhamma practice, 
to come upon a dead seal on the beach. Every day for a month I walked down to that body and sat with it for a while, observing and letting the process of decomposition and decay, which in this instance was happening very quickly because it was being helped by the helped along by the many seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh to be delicious food. This daily practice during that month-long retreat was heart and mind-changing for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England and the senior Western monk of the Thai forest tradition in the tradition of Ajahn Chah tells about a time that um, he was living in the monastery in Thailand and he asked if he uh, could spend part of a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, uh, the authorities let him go in, although they were uh, somewhat reluctant about it. And he said that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged, actually, he said, fully assaulted. He said that the first thing that hit him was the smell, which almost drove him to run out the door, he said. But he just stayed mindfully present, and little by little by little, it became tolerable. Just a smell just a scent. He talked about his long-standing and deeply embedded assumptions regarding the package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart as he took in the various stages of decay that were all around him. And he mentions that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, which he at first found quite puzzling, and then quickly realized that the bloated body in front of him could explode at any minute, which he said he dearly wished it wouldn't, and he was glad that it didn't. (laughs) He said that when, when he went back out onto the street he saw people in a radically new way and with a radically wide open heart. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, living and non-living, are mortal. And we're so attached to forms, our own form and all sorts of other forms. For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for an attachment to, for instance, forms that please us or forms that are beautiful to us or forms that are amusing or maybe interesting to us or simply in relationship to familiar forms. And I think what is actually strange and amazing is that fairly often we think 
and act as if we and they won't change, won't die. Which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or not so subtle tension and stress in our heart, our mind, and our body. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? It can be helpful to check in now and then to see if you're practicing in ways that are really, truly moving you towards understanding and insight, truly moving you towards wisdom and the realization of the heart qualities of metta and compassion. Practice that's subtly or maybe more overtly rooted in wrong ideas, misconceptions or misperceptions can sometimes become very deeply rooted in the mind and accompany us along the way of our practice for many years. A good question you might ask yourself now and then is, am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? Mindfulness is kind of like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of practice, we find the way. And because each of us has experienced specific and unique conditioning, the path and its fruits emerge in both universal and unique ways for each of us. We discover the treasures of the truth in perfectly natural ways through our own direct experience, which is at the same time both personal and impersonal. With this great treasure, treasure hunt, yielding its healing and beautiful and liberating treasures of the way of things. As an essential factor of our awakening, as one of the seven factors of enlightenment, we learn to clearly know when mindfulness is established in us, and we come to know when it's absent. In closing this evening's talk, I'd like to read a wonderful and inspiring instruction uh, from the Buddha that we can offer ourselves anytime. It's called A Single Excellent Night. Let me not revive the past, nor on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, 
with insight let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is in her, in him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. And we'll close our evening together chanting the sharing of blessings.